Well, good morning. I bring you greetings from Oakhurst Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was just about a year after completing my MDiv here in 2014 that my church there, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., partnered along with uh, my home church in Charlotte, North Carolina that I grew up in, Carmel Baptist Church, to send me back to Charlotte to replant a 79-year-old Southern Baptist Church right in the heart of the city of Charlotte, about four miles south of, of Uptown, sent me there to replant that church. And initially, we thought we were going to, to plant a church, but the Lord opened up an opportunity for us to come in and to, to replant, to try to revive a historic gospel witness there in the city of Charlotte. Oakhurst Baptist Church at that time was not going to see its 80th anniversary. Uh, a main hall, a sanctuary that seats about 500 people, averaged about 30 to 40 in attendance. The average age was around 80, 85 Dear saints who loved the Lord, who had served there for years, but just didn't see a way forward and thought they needed to shut down the doors of the church and maybe hand off to someone else to figure out what might be next. But the Lord crossed our paths, uh, connected us, and we brought in a church planting core team of about 20 adults to join with the 25 people there that wanted to, to form a team to replant Oakhurst Baptist Church. You see, it was our desire that as the city of Charlotte was exploding with population growth, new homes being built, condos being built, coffee shops popping up, to not see churches closing down. And as important as I think it is to plant churches, to birth new churches, I think there's also a strategic opportunity to revive old churches, that we wouldn't see churches merely have the lifespan of human beings, where they live 79, 80, 85 years, and they just die and shut down. But we want to see these churches revived, gospel witnesses restored. As cities explode with growth, we want to see churches displaying the gospel there. Now, very early on, we would use this statement. We would uh, say this statement often to our church members. There's nothing greater you can give your life to than the building up of the local church. There's nothing greater you can give your life to than the building up of the local church. That, that statement, it comes out of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, where we see a picture of the church as God's vessel to display the gospel to the ends of the earth. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, if you're looking on your phone this morning, I would encourage you to turn off your notifications. Give yourself a, a time where you're free from distraction to look at God's word, to consider what God has said. And I'd like to ask you, if you would, to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read through Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities and the heavenly places. Please remain standing as I pray. 
Father in heaven, we ask that you would humble us to receive your word this morning, that you would take the truth of your word, that you would plant it deep within us and bring fruit for your glory. Lord, we ask that we would love the church like you do, that we would long for your glory more and more. So Lord, I ask you to help me to faithfully and clearly preach this passage and that your son Jesus would be exalted in our time together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, please be seated. Well, chapter 3 starts off, if you look there in in verse 1, it starts off as if Paul is ready to offer up a prayer in verse 1. But then he digresses a little bit. He takes a bit of a detour to speak more about the mystery revealed in Christ, to speak about God's glorious plan of salvation. If you look at verse 1, it starts off with the phrase, for this reason. And that phrase refers back to what he just addressed at the end of chapter 2, the the joining of Jews and Gentiles together to form one people in Christ in the church. And then look down in verse 14. That verse, it starts off with the same phrase, for this reason. And then Paul, after that, he he gives thanks and he he offers up a prayer, which is the second half of chapter 3. So the first half of chapter 3, it's this glorious detour where where Paul is just teaching on the mystery of Christ. But why is it that he he pauses his prayer and takes this detour? Well, likely because it's the Ephesians were discouraged at his imprisonment. And his suffering, maybe they were concerned about him, scared about him, maybe even growing concerned about themselves. Would they be next in line to suffer and to be imprisoned for the gospel? I mean, we see later in verse 13 that Paul asked them not to lose heart over his suffering. So they might be worried about him. And Paul wants them to know that that even in prison, he's content. He's joyful, even in prison, because God's glorious plan of salvation is continuing to unfold, and he wants them to see this too. That brings us to verses 8 through 10, where he talks about God's plan unfolding through the preaching of the gospel and through being a display of the gospel in the local Church. So I want us to see as we track through this passage this morning, if you're taking notes, the outline this morning, two ways the gospel moves forward. Two ways the gospel moves forward. The first way we see the gospel moving forward in verses 8 and 9, the gospel is revealed through preaching. The gospel is revealed through preaching. Well, if you truly understand the grace of God, it has a humbling impact on your life. And we see this in the life of Paul. Paul knew that his life, his salvation, his calling as an apostle, his gospel ministry was all by God's grace. That's why we see there in verse 8, he assigns himself a superlative. He says that he was the very least of all the saints. I didn't say that he's the very least of all the apostles. He says the very least of of all believers. And if we consider Paul's testimony, he really was like one of the most unlikely candidates to be a missionary, to be one who would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before his conversion, persecuting the church, throwing Christians in prison, Acts chapter 7, overseeing the stoning of Stephen. And it was along that road to Damascus 
Christ pursuing him, the risen Christ appearing to him. His life was transformed and changed. That's why in this letter, he keeps going on and on and on about the grace given to him. He couldn't get over how undeserving he was of God's grace, how much grace God had given him. Well, Christian, I wonder, do you have this type of humility? If you're here at Southeastern preparing for gospel ministry, or maybe you're presently serving in gospel ministry, this type of humility, this type of godly character produced by the Holy Spirit is necessary for leadership in the local church. It's necessary for gospel ministry. It's something I pray every Saturday night. Because sometimes people ask me, well, do you enjoy preaching? I said, well, I enjoy preaching. I really enjoy sermon prep. I'm thankful that my church is able to provide funds to pay my salary so I can give so much time to studying God's Word. And I really love preparing for my sermons until Saturday night. Saturday night feels a little bit like, what am I going to say tomorrow? This isn't coming together. I don't feel quite ready. And it's bedtime. And in that moment, I ask the Lord, Lord, remind me of the joy that it is. It certainly is a weighty responsibility. But remind me of the joy that you've chosen for me to go to Oakhurst Baptist Church and preach the word. Brother and sister in Christ, we must never get over how undeserving we are of God's kindness and just how gracious God has been with us in Christ. That is a fuel and a motivation in ministry to remember God's love for us in Jesus. Well, this grace, it was given to Paul, and it empowered him, and it enabled him to receive and to fulfill a ministry. So Paul understood that this grace was given to him for God's purposes. Now here in verse 8 and 9, he unpacks a few purposes of why God's grace was given to him. Two purposes here. Look at verse 8, the end of verse 8. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's one purpose. And then a second purpose in verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So to preach, to bring to light. Two purposes there of why God called him to gospel ministry. Now we keep seeing this word mystery. It really is nothing mysterious. He actually reveals what the mystery is there in verse 6 of chapter 3. Simply put, the mystery is that God's people are now both Jews and Gentiles. They are equal and have been made one in Christ, reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in him, and therefore reconciled to one another. Dividing wall of hostility, torn down, one people and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the mystery revealed. So in verses 8 and 9, he's showing how this mystery will be revealed to the nations. That's the mystery. Here's how it's going to be revealed to the nations. And first off, he says, through preaching. That's how it's going to be revealed. Through proclaiming Jesus Christ crucified and risen. So these two purposes track with it. Preaching in verse 8, so we see preaching and bringing to light in verse 9, they go together. The heart of Paul's ministry, the heart of Christian ministry is to preach and to bring to light the truth about God in Jesus Christ. Now this verb preach in in verse 8, it certainly includes preaching in the local church on the Lord's Day. 
Certainly includes pulpit ministry. Uh, But I I think it's also more broad in scope, speaking to just broadly proclamation. And every time this verb is used in the New Testament, it always refers to proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the preaching that you hear on Sunday morning, you need to be in a good gospel-preaching church, a church that, that teaches God's word and sound doctrine. What that should do, that should impact you every week as a Christian, remind you of who you've been made to be through faith in Jesus Christ. And that gospel would reverberate through the congregation throughout the week, that wherever we go, we would proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in our homes, at school, at work, in our neighborhoods, in gyms, wherever we go that we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul says here in verse 8 that he preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's his ministry to proclaim, to proclaim this message of the unsearchable, incomprehensible riches of God found in Jesus Christ. The riches of the kindness of his grace. Jesus laying down his life willingly as a substitute in our place to pay the penalty for our sins, for the sins of anyone who would turn and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the unsearchable riches of Christ that he goes on and on and on about. His ministry, simply put, proclamation. Now notice that in verse 8, Paul says that God called him to preach to the Gentiles. In verse 9, he says here, God called him to bring to light for everyone. This likely refers to what Paul's doing in this letter, teaching those who put their faith in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, this plan of the mystery of Christ helping believers understand and helping to bring to light God's plan of salvation. That's the goal of Christian preaching. That's the goal of proclamation, a deeper understanding of who God is and what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, the gospel, it only moves forward through verbal proclamation. We understand that that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, right? But how are they to believe in him of whom they never heard, Paul says in Romans 10. And how are they to hear without someone what? Preaching. The gospel is revealed through preaching. I think an important takeaway we should have from this passage is to never assume the gospel. The the enemy, he attacks the church, certainly through, I think, false teaching. False teaching comes from within the walls of the local church. It's an attack of the enemy to distract us from the gospel, to take us away from the gospel, to preach a false gospel, to point people to trust in themselves or something else besides the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But, but I think often in the churches that I run with, the circles I'm in, our challenge isn't so much false teaching as it is assuming the gospel. Maybe just assuming because we've proclaimed the gospel before, that people have heard it, they've got it, and, and maybe thinking some reason wrongly that the gospel is merely like the elementary truths of the faith and we've got to move on to other things. I have a brother, a brother pastor friend who this past summer, he told me he was on sabbatical. He visited all sorts of other churches around the country. And what he said to me, he said he went to a number of churches 
uh, all the way out to the West Coast, across the country, he said he didn't hear the resurrection of Christ mentioned once in a sermon the entire summer. I don't think that's because he was going to churches that didn't have the gospel. I don't think that was going, that's because he was going to churches with bad pastors. My guess is likely it was just an assumption of the gospel taking over pulpit ministry. And it's something that I was cautioned on and exhorted in in my training. Don't assume the gospel. Max Stiles, in his book, Evangelism, speaks to this challenge in churches. He says, you know, one generation, they, they hear the gospel, they believe the gospel, and then what can often end up happening is they end up assuming the gospel, meaning we think everyone's heard it, therefore we're not clear on the gospel in our children's ministries or our student ministries or even in the sermons on Sunday. What happens when you start to assume the gospel? You lose it. You lose the message. Brothers and sisters, God's glory is at stake in preaching. And if we are to bring God glory, we must preach the gospel. In your personal evangelism, don't assume the gospel. Your, your testimony is not personal evangelism. Your testimony is a testimony of God saving you and his grace through faith in Jesus but communicate the gospel to your unbelieving family members and friends. Share with them the truth about who God is, that he created us, that we've sinned against God, that we've broken his commandments, we've rejected his love, and God is right to judge us for our sin. But God, in his amazing grace and his love and his kindness, he sent his son Jesus down to earth to live life fully as man and fully as God. He did what you and I couldn't possibly do. He perfectly honored God in all that he did, perfectly loving God and perfectly loving his neighbor, loving everyone that he came into contact with. And then he laid his life down willingly and died on the cross as a substitute, his blood as a payment for the sins of anyone who would repent and believe in Jesus Christ. God raised him from the dead three days later as proof that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins as proof that he is who he said he was, the son of God. That's the message that Christians find joy in that we must go on and on and on about. May we be those who commit ourselves to preaching, to verbally proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Well, preaching and bringing to light is for the ultimate purpose of what we see in verse 10 of God's glory being displayed for the world to see. And in verse 10, let's consider the second way the gospel moves forward. That's the second part of the outline here, verse 10. The gospel is displayed through the church. The gospel is displayed through the church. Now, God's grace was given to Paul to preach to the Gentiles. God's grace was given to bring to light for everyone the plan of God's mystery. And here in verse 10, we see another purpose of God's grace given to the apostle Paul. Look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Manifold, that, that word, it means many different facets. To be varied beyond measure, taking many different forms. 
In other words, God's wisdom is amazing with many facets. God's wisdom is beyond measure. The idea here, the manifold wisdom of God is on display through the church. The church, it's a display of God's glory, of his wisdom, of his holiness, of his character. There's no one like our God. He is on display in local churches. You see, the result of the gospel being proclaimed is that some will hear the gospel and repent and believe in Jesus. And there's a creation then of a, of a new community, the church, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and have been baptized upon that profession of faith. And it is through the church that God's wisdom is displayed and made known to the ends of the earth. Now, Paul's already mentioned two audiences so far in this section. Verse 8, he mentioned preaching to the Gentiles. That's the first audience. Verse 9, a second audience to bring to light for, for everyone. This covers Jew and Gentile alike again. Now in verse 10, there's a third audience. A bit of an unusual audience that you may not guess. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's referring to the spiritual realm. So rulers, authority, and the heavenly places, it could have in mind, I think certainly angels, it could possibly also have in mind demons, or are both in view. The point here, not only does the church make God's wisdom known on earth, but also in the spiritual realm? What else can you think of that exists today that displays God's glory in that way? In heaven, on earth, even in hell. The church. God displays his glory through the church here on earth and in heaven. Angels, they rejoice as they look into God's redemptive plan that's unfolded through his people, the church. The powers of darkness tremble as they see God's power displayed through the church, and they see clearly that their doom is sure. God has put his glory on display. It's his design. It's his choice. It's his purpose. It's his plan that his glory and salvation is displayed to the ends of the earth through the church. So I want you to think about that, that the church is a display of God's glory. The, the display, I would understand here, of God's glory. And think about what a display does. Think about its function. First off, it makes something visible. A display is meant to, to make something visible. A display exists to protect whatever it is that it is displaying. Well, consider a diamond ring. Something is on display on a diamond ring. Now, no one sees when someone gets engaged, ladies, when you get engaged or you've gotten engaged, nobody looked at that ring and took a look at it and said, wow, what a beautiful set of prongs on that ring. That would be weird to say. No one would think that. No one should say that. That's not what's on display in a diamond ring. But, but think about that set of prongs. Think about how important that set of prongs is on a diamond ring. It displays a precious jewel, a beautiful gem, a, a diamond. 
You know, just a few weeks, my wife and I will celebrate the 20th anniversary of our engagement. So we got engaged May 26th, almost 20 years ago. I knew nothing about diamonds at that time as a 23-year-old single man. When I went to shop, I learned about all the different C's of finding a diamond, the cut of a diamond, the clarity of a diamond, the color of a diamond, and that all-important carrot of a diamond, the size of the diamond. And then I learned how quickly, how much it would cost me as a single guy just out of college. Why was that ring? Why was there so many technicalities to observe about it? Why was it so expensive? It wasn't because of the set of the prongs. It was because of the jewel, the precious gem displayed there, the rock. Well, think about in that illustration. Think about the diamond being the gospel and the set of prongs being the church. The church displays Jesus, his glory, who he is as the son of God, come in flesh, crucified, buried, risen from the dead, reigning right now this morning, returning hopefully one day soon. That's what's on display on that set of prongs, the church. And when you understand just how precious that diamond is, you'll begin to understand just how important by God's design the church is. You'll understand that your participation in a local church is actually to be a part of that, that, that set of prongs, to display the gospel for all to see, to protect the gospel, right? Those prongs do not hold that diamond. I remember my, my wife, when we first got engaged and we went on a vacation, and she was in the ocean. I was so scared that ring would fall off her finger and go into the ocean. I actually asked her to take it off and put it in our beach bag. That's how ridiculous I was thinking about losing that ring, right? But we understand that the prongs are, are sure. And in this situation, we understand the prongs are sure because Jesus has promised, I will build my church. Then we understand we have this glorious role to be a part of something that displays the glory of Jesus. I wonder how it is that you think about the church. You see, when we understand that, that churches are God's plan to display his glory. And you've probably heard this said, I've heard it somewhere before, that it is God's plan A to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. His plan A to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, it's the church. And you know what his plan B is? There isn't one. There isn't one needed. Jesus promised, I will build my church. But when you understand that, I think this supports the statement, there is nothing greater you can give your life to than the building up of the local church. Have you ever considered how important your involvement in your local church is? And I know some people say, oh, well, the church is just like, we, we are the church. We don't go to church. That's a terrible way of thinking. Yes, we are the church, meaning all believers, past, present, and future, purchased by the blood of Christ belonging to him. Yes, there is the universal church referring to a heavenly assembly, but we see that the majority usage of this term in the New Testament is referring to local churches, earthly assemblies, real-life displays of God's glory and his wisdom scattered across the globe and hopefully in more places that don't have churches. That's our aim. It's what a lot of you here are praying for and working towards, displays of God's glory being spread out, particularly in places where they don't exist right now, places that we would deem to be unreached. When you understand God's plan and this picture of the local church, it will radically change the way you think about your life, the way you think about your time, 
What comes into your mind when you think about ministry, wherever it is God calls you to serve? You see, the church is a real-life picture of the message we preach. In the church, there's unity, love, forgiveness, sacrifice being displayed through our life together. In the church, people love one another out of love for King Jesus and his kingdom. In the church, people sacrifice for King Jesus and his kingdom, giving of ourselves, of our time, of our treasure. In the church, people from all sorts of different backgrounds are united, young and old, male and female, different ethnicities, languages, nations coming together. Our unity is not centered around what other organizations are united around. We're not united around certainly what we think about COVID or politics or anything else. We might disagree on those things. We might have fierce debates on matters like that. However, our unity is found in the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been bought and purchased with a price. We exist for his glory. You see, God's plan is to reveal himself and to bring himself glory through the church. That's why I think the greatest takeaway you can have from this passage, there is nothing greater you can give your life to than the building up of the local church. It's not possible to live for the glory of God here on earth and to live disconnected from the local church. I don't know what you mean. I really don't know what you mean. If you say, I wanna live for the glory of God, I wanna live for the spread of the gospel, and I'm not connected in a meaningful way to a local body. If you wanna live for the glory of God, give yourself to God's people in a local church. If you wanna be a part of the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth, Give yourself to the local church. It's why I appreciate this seminary. This seminary understands its mission very clearly, to serve the local church, to equip servants of the local church, to be a part of raising up pastors and missionaries, biblical counselors, and what do we all serve? The local church. Whatever it is God has called you to, whatever kind of ministry he's given you, it's all for the building up of this display of God's glory to the ends of the earth. Elders, deacons, members of a church, together we build up the church and display the glory of God. What else in your life can you give yourself to that is guaranteed to succeed? Nothing. The church is the only institution the only thing guaranteed to succeed, to be here when Christ returns. Now, I know Oakhurst Baptist Church, uh, we're not guaranteed to be here when Jesus returns. I hope we are. Right? So it's not for every local church, but there will be local churches when Jesus returns. I hope my local church is one of them. I hope it happens in my lifetime, in the lifetime of my ministry. But we do understand there will be gospel witnesses existing when Christ returns. We labor to that end. Brother and sister in Christ, Give yourself to what Jesus has commissioned, the building up of his church. Well, I mentioned earlier that we came into our church in 2015, 79 years old, about to shut down, dying, sweet people there who, who really just saw no way forward. By God's grace, this past September, we just celebrated our 85th anniversary as a local church. 
by God's grace, that sanctuary that seats 500 people, that was about 30, is full today. About 400 people gathering on Sunday mornings. Nurseries that hadn't seen kids in about a decade, full of young children. The baptistry, which is rusty, it was so rusty, I joked, you had to get a tetanus shot if you wanted to go in there and get baptized. Thankfully, I had waiters on, so the person getting baptized, I told him, I hope you have your tetanus shot. We just painted over it. But that Baptist, baptistry that had been empty for so long and not seen baptisms, been filling up Sunday after Sunday, 85 years now of gospel ministry. I say even, you know, we're approaching our, our seventh anniversary's replant. I put an asterisk beside that saying there was a pandemic for like a year and a half of that. By God's grace, our church grew during the pandemic, all to the glory of God, his glory on display. We long to see churches planted. We long to see churches revitalized. We long to see those churches built up because they display God's glory. We long to see churches full because they display the glory of God. I leave you with the words of Isaac Watts and his hymn, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. Is this, is the place. We long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. Amen? Amen. Let's bow and pray. Father, we ask for a greater appetite and hunger for your glory. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our desire to see your churches full, to see people hear the gospel and by grace repent and believe in Jesus, that all the chosen race with one voice and heart and soul would sing your redeeming grace all for your glory. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us in our desire for your glory in the local church. Pray that the men and the women that are in this room this morning, that you would use them, that you would equip them to be more faithful servants of your church. Lord, we ask that you would bring fruit from the endeavors that are presently taking place and those that are in the planning stage, people who are here who long to plant churches, who long to go out for the sake of the name as missionaries to spread the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen churches through the ministry of this seminary. We pray you'd strengthen us as a result of hearing your word this morning, that we would live more and more for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.